But can I add my welcome to Naomi's? My name's Morris, I'm one of the leaders of Christchurch. Um, really nice of you to tune in and give us your time this morning. And we hope sometime soon to be able to welcome you physically um, as we begin to gather again. If you're, I just want to say a particular welcome to you, if you're moving to Liverpool, coming here to work or to study, and so you're using this chance to check out churches remotely, we would love to welcome you. And we'd love just to welcome you and say hi, even if you don't decide to come to our church. So just fill in the contact form below the screen and we'd love to stay in touch. Do find a Bible if you haven't got one open or switched on. And if you've got kids, now would be a good time to give them some colouring or some Lego or um, a lot of sweets or, um, you know, a hamster to play with, something like that. And uh, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1. So do find Daniel chapter 1 in your Bible. It's after Ezekiel, if that helps you find it. We are starting a series um, over the next few weeks and we've called it Mad World. And I hope, therefore, the relevance to all of our situations we're living in at the moment is clear to you why we've done it. I was just thinking back and thinking, who would have thought the first day we thought, oh, we're going to have to do this service remotely um, uh, back in March, to think we'd still be doing that in September. And with no end in sight, certainly back to normality of church life still seems a long way away. None of us could have imagined what the year 2020 would hold. The world's gone mad. Our normal patterns of life have gone. And it's clear, not making any party political point here, I just think stating the obvious, that this situation is beyond the expertise of both our national and our local government. Their only way of coping with this situation we're in has been to close down a lot of everybody's life. Now, some things are getting more normal. School, pub, restaurant. But the truth is, Christians gathering together and being able to love and serve each other and sing and worship and serve and love their community and share the gospel, those things aren't important to the people who make decisions about our lives. So in this mad world, it feels like what matters to God is being totally trashed and lost. Who knows when we'll next sing a hymn together? Who knows when we'll next fly somewhere or have our extended family to stay or go back in and work in the office. And it's true all over the world. A mad world we live in. It's true globally and it's true for me personally. My world has gone mad. Well, we're going to look for the next week, few weeks of the book of Daniel because it's the story of someone who lived through a mad, mad world and is commended by God and by the rest of the Bible writers as a model of wisdom. He learned not just to cope, but to thrive in a world that was going totally mad. And then after Daniel's story, the second half of the book um, moves from the personal, how he was wise in a mad world, to a huge, like, apocalyptic picture of all time that assures us that while all of history is going to be marked by periods of unrest and madness, huge things will continue to happen that we don't understand 
the God, the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus is in control and can be trusted. And Daniel models that personally. The second half of the book shows that globally and for history. So we thought it'd be good to look at for this moment in time. And the book opens with a dramatic moment of chaos and disaster. That's in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel 1. Chaos and disaster. As far as the people of Israel were concerned at their stage in his, at this stage in their history, the people of Judah, their temple was God's house, their city was protected by God, and the stuff they had in their temple to worship God, well, he would always protect that. It was holy. It belonged to him. Nothing could have seemed less likely to them than all of that to be destroyed. And then came this king, Nebuchadnezzar. We'll be getting to know him a bit over the next few weeks. And actually, if you read about him, we would probably say about him today, he had some sort of mental problem. He was a megalomaniac, obsessed with himself. And so this unhinged king defeated God's city, killed most of the people who thought they were God's people, and dragged some of them away to a foreign land to slavery. The world went mad. Perhaps even more mad than the world we're experiencing now because of the sheer violence of it. And the people who were left, with their friends and relatives killed or left behind, just ended up in a mad world they didn't know or recognise. Perhaps most shocking to them, and Daniel mentions it to us, these things, these articles, they had used to worship God, so they had assumed would be protected and God would always look after. They were stolen. And old Nezer took them back to Babylon to use them to worship his own God. Even what was supposed to be for God was trashed. Everything they relied on disappeared and even the things you most thought God would be concerned to look after were taken away. But look at verse 2. Very telling words. Verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. See there's a backstory here. This king of Israel, Jehoiakim, and those before him had been warned, if you continue to reject God, God will take your land away from you. He will take your temple away from you. He will take away from you this relationship you have with him. And in the end, what God said would happen did happen. So even in this maddest of worlds, even in the moment that it looks like God's own work is being undermined and his people are suffering, God, the Lord, is still in control. As powerful and evil as Nebuchadnezzar is, and he is pretty powerful and pretty evil, he can only take what the Lord gives into his hands. And the Lord, it seems, always has his good reasons. In this case, the case of the people of Daniel, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, his reasons are actually pretty clear. 
that land that had his name attached, that temple they were supposed to be using to worship him, well, they were using all of that to crush the poor. It was steeped in violence. So God had his reasons for doing this unimaginable thing, for allowing what looked so right and secure to be pulled down. So this sits here to us in our mad world as an example. It's This one is given to us with reasons so we can trust. God has good reasons, even in the many cases to us where his reasons aren't clear. God is always in control. He always has good reasons, even for seemingly allowing evil to triumph. We couldn't have worked his reasons out unless we'd been told. I'm just going to uh, talk about a brief aside for a moment. Um, I've been asked a few times over the last little while, Given what Daniel says and what other bits of the Bible say about this punishment, is the pandemic, coronavirus, is that a punishment from God for us at our time? Well, just to be clear, we're going well beyond this passage, which is about that moment in history. And Jesus warns us strongly about trying to take God's place and explain that people are suffering because of some bad thing they've done. If God wants to punish people, he will do it and explain it to us. It's not our job to make that judgment about people's suffering. Because it's not always the way the world works. Perhaps most of the time it's not the way the world works. We will all know good people who've suffered very unjustly. And it's not our job to say, well, they must have secretly been very bad. That's beyond our pay grade. So we don't get to point anywhere and say this pandemic is a judgment on you for being bad. We should never be looking to see if things that happen are judgments from God on other people. And occasionally you hear even well-meaning Christians say things like that. Say that bad thing happened to you and it was a fault with you. You didn't have enough faith. Jesus warns us very much against making that type of judgment. But the world as a whole, the Bible tells us, is at enmity with the God who made us. And one day God will judge the whole world the way he judged these people then, and everyone will get what they deserve. But in the meantime, this world is broken. It doesn't work. It's like a window that has had a brick thrown at it. It's still a window, but everything is cracked and distorted. The world malfunctions because we're at enmity with God. And so things like pandemics show us the world is not the way it should be. But more than that, God is still in control. And so while he doesn't say you're bad, so you get judged in that way, and everybody can see you're bad because you're suffering. He never says that. Outbreaks of brokenness at particular times can teach us particular things. And particularly if you're a Christian, one of God's people, you should think about, say, a pandemic in that way. We shouldn't think about it to say, oh, well, bad people must be being punished. But we should use a time of difficulty in the world 
to reflect how we're doing in serving God. Is God teaching us something we need to learn? So it seems tragic to me that God has taken away our ability to meet together, to sing. To be honest, it feels like a little bit of an own goal for God. Why take away the ability of the church to meet? Well, I don't think, well, it must be that we're bad and he's punishing us. But given that the whole world is against God, and this is the sign of brokenness in the world, and God is in control of that, I do need to trustingly reflect on what I should learn. And maybe, for example, we had got used to thinking church is a place we come, and a thing we do. Rather than trusting and walking with Jesus every day, which is what we're being challenged to do now. So if you're not a Christian watching, I want to assure you that nothing bad that has happened to you is God's punishment on you. You're no worse or better than anyone else. But the fact that bad things have happened to you is a sign that everything in the world is wrong. Could it be that's because there's a problem between all of us and the God who made us? And a time of a pandemic would be a great time to consider whether God is using it to call you back to him. Well, brackets closed. That was an aside. By way over. The thing to remember is there is chaos and disaster, but God is always in control. Second thing we see in this passage is propaganda and indoctrination. Old Nezer has a very clever idea to try and strengthen his grip on the empire. Didn't work, but it was a clever idea. We're going to see later on in the book. He starts a university in Babylon. It's a very selective university. You can only come if you've got the right background. So posh people only. Some universities still function like that today, don't they? You can only come, according to uh, Daniel, uh, you can only come if you're good looking. We'd rule a lot of people out who are currently at university. And you can only come if you've got excellent A-level results, not messed up by a mutant education secretary. You've got to be clever. Very selective. And when you get there from Judah to Babylon, you have to be immersed in the language and the literature and the view of the world of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's a three-year course. And as a bonus, you get the best food from the king's table. Can you see something very clever and quite sinister is going on here? The land of Judah is desolate and besieged. All the good stuff is gone from there. Those left behind are either dead or they're living in a ruined city, grinding poverty, slave labour. Well, here's a chance. A chance to use your privilege and your ability to escape all of that. You could get out of that awkward, dirty and poor place of being one of God's defeated people. If you're rich and you're clever and you're good looking, you could eat off the king's table. But there's a trade to make here. You have to leave the culture of your people behind. You have to be immersed in the worldview and speak the language of this evil empire that is against your people. You need to replace the worship of the real God. Daniel and his friends, did you notice, even had their Hebrew, their uh, 
birth names from Judah taken away and replaced with Babylonian names, which are all references to Babylonian gods. Your identity has to be given to the system. That's the deal. You can get the best stuff if you're sold into belonging to this evil empire. It's interesting. Evil systems always work that way. Godless systems. No, you may be part of some sort of system that says, oh, don't worry about your faith. You can respect that as long as you keep it personal. But you need to give your life over to. You need to serve. You need to speak the language that we speak. You're even going to have to change your convictions and the person that you are. But there's good rewards from this system if you do it. So maybe in our mad world, you're a very clever, capable person and that is already happening to you. Now you're a Christian doctor who gets spotted for being a good doctor because you're a Christian, you're honest, you respect your patients. Well, come further and further into the system then. But you will need to speak our language of inclusivity and diversity. You will need to think what we say about medical ethics matters more than what your faith says. Oh, we'll give you a very impressive new title. You can have the best food from the king's table, a parking space, an office, a salary, access to power. Now what's going on? A godless system is trying to fade away your Christian distinctiveness to make you fit into the system and offering you good stuff to do it. Particularly health workers can be a bit naive to that because you think you're doing a good thing, making sick people well, and that's a very good uh, thing to do. But you could easily become a trophy of the NHS rather than a trophy of Jesus. Or maybe in this mad world, you're a brilliant and talented performer. That's inspired by your faith in Jesus. It's God-given creativity and it's right and you want to express that. So you get drawn into the entertainment industry, a huge system that is very much not inspired by trusting God. It's a pretty evil empire if you read stuff about it in the papers, as far as I can tell. But that empire says to you, yeah, yeah, come in. You'll need to speak our language, though, and respect our culture. You'll really need to think about your sexuality and your identity and your success. You'll need to think about that in our way rather than the way you're used to. Oh, you'll get the best food from the king's table. You'll meet the most important people. But the system is trying to strip away your distinctiveness. Or maybe you're coming to university in this mad world. You're coming to learn and enjoy and read widely and experience the culture of the world that doesn't know God. And like Daniel and his friends, you have much to learn about that. But be aware... Nearly all scholarship works from assumptions that reject the truth about God. And universities are, for all their talk of diversity, very good at wearing away the strong but strange to them convictions of Christians. And they are doing it on purpose. They believe you will be a more useful citizen to our state if you fall into line, academically and socially. I met a history student recently who said, oh, well, it's really shaken my faith to come to university and discover from unbiased lecturers that Christianity has actually done a lot of harm in the world. Well, I want to say, while Christians may be biased to say Christianity is a good thing, 
people who aren't Christians are also biased into saying it's a bad thing. The system is designed that way. Now I've used very strong words about everyday things there. The NHS, the entertainment industry, universities, and I've used strong words like anti-God. You may be worried you've, you've tuned in to the rabid fundamentalist anti-NHS, anti-TV, blow up universities church channel. But look, that is not what Daniel and his friends do. They could have said, the honourable thing to do here, the pure thing to do here is to not accept this preferment and this attempt to change our views. They could have said, withdraw from the NHS and become a missionary doctor. They could have said, oh, don't become an actor, become a vicar. They could have said, don't go to university, stay at a Christian college. And that is not what they do, or the equivalent. They appear to give in. They're called by their new names throughout the first chapters by the Babylonians. By the end of this chapter, they have learned a lot at the University of Babylon. They didn't withdraw, they accepted the education. And yet still, they are commended for being wise. So I want to say today, if you are a Christian deeply immersed in a godless system, well done you. The Bible says that is the wisest place for Christians to be, right in the centre of the godless world. But in there, they did make choices and they did accept the results. That's the next thing we see, choices and results. You can't withdraw from all the godless systems around you, but look what Daniel is worried about um, in verse 8. He is worried about being defiled. That means what Daniel is concerned about is that he will be less holy, less separate, less distinctive than God wants him to be. And so he makes this choice not to eat the king's food and wine from his table. Now, the university official is worried that Nezer will blame him for their bad health if they don't eat the good food. And so Daniel says, well, test us. And after 10 days, they look healthier than all the others in their seminar group. Why, though, did Daniel make such a big deal about the food? Why is it OK to listen to hours of lectures about the false gods of Babylon but just avoid eating the meat? Why is it all right to come into the heart of this evil empire and, as we're going to see, to actually accept a job and work for it, but not eat the food? Drink the wine. What's the big deal about the food? Well, let me tell you a secret. After having read lots of books about Daniel, nobody knows. Nobody knows why he chose the food as his place to draw the line in the sand. And I wonder if perhaps that's the point. There is no command in the Bible that means they shouldn't particularly eat this food and this wine. But I think that's the point. It's that Daniel says, I have to do something to make it clear I'm not part of this. And it's almost random what he chooses. So the command in the Bible that God's given his people is be holy as I am holy, be separate, be distinct. And Daniel's like, I've got to choose some way 
to show that I'm distinct and belong to God. Now, I said it's random. It's not actually random, is it? It's actually very cleverly chosen. It's not rude. He could have stood up in the lectures and said, hey, your literature and language suck and they're nothing compared to the Hebrew scriptures. But he doesn't do that. It only um, disadvantages himself. Doesn't hurt anybody else. But it is noticeable this food was coming from the king's table, so the king would have noticed his food being rejected. Important people will see it. He's really sticking his head above the parapet on purpose, so it's not rude, but it is noticeable. It's rooted in his own respect for God, rather than making a fuss about something. He wants to strengthen and express his own relationship with God. I mean, he could have done anything to look different, worn pink on Tuesdays or whatever, but food, he thinks, will show he belongs to the God of Israel. He doesn't belong to the king supplying food from his table. And it is risky. It could have got him and the people around him into real trouble. He needed God to come through for him here. I think once you're in a mad world, you may well realise that any idea you were secure is totally undermined. So you can take risks, perhaps with things you previously thought provided you with safety. So if you're a doctor, please get absolutely as involved in the NHS as you can be. And if you're a singer, please go and be a Christian in that very godless industry. And if you're coming to uni for uni life, know your subject well, play sport well, become the social centre of your corridor. But decide now how far and no further you will go. And you decide in conscience before God. Choose something that's not rude, but noticeable. Something that's Jesus-centred, Take a stand about something. We don't withdraw from the world. We get plugged right in and then we choose to be distinctive. Now, just to be clear, obeying God's law, that sort of taken is read here. Doing things that are right because God says they're right, you don't get to choose which of those to do. So loving your neighbours, caring about the poor, not sleeping around, not getting drunk, things the Bible says that Christians do and don't do, that's like a baseline. Not being nasty to people and caring about social justice, they might make you stand out, but you've just got to do them anyway. That's assumed. Daniel's example is saying something more. It's saying there might be an area where the application of God's command isn't clear, but instead of keeping your head down and deliberately trying to hide the fact you're a Christian... Choose a way of life that is not rude or insulting, but is noticeable in the hope your difference will be seen. We tend to do the opposite. We tend to think, well, I have to do what God says, but I hope no one notices and asks me about it. But God's people in a mad world choose something that is not required of them, but will show other people that their relationship with God matters most. And they try and choose something that isn't offensive, 
but maybe risky. So no one could have condemned Daniel for eating the food. And so when I'm trying to think of examples for today for us about this, I just want to be clearer, clearer than in any talk really, I am not creating laws for you to follow. Even more than most talks, these are just suggestions of how you might do this. You need to look at the culture you live in and work out with the help of other Christians and the Lord himself where your line should be drawn. And so I've taken some suggestions of people who are modelling this to me, but they may or may not be examples for you. Caveat, caveat, caveat. So, someone in church recently was telling me that in their work at the moment, people feel like they're very important and they're worried about being somewhere that someone then turns out to have coronavirus and they get contact traced and then they have to miss two weeks of work. That would be very frowned on. It would be a measure that you're not very serious about your work if you took that risk. But this person was saying to me, even if that's the case, once I have a chance to meet with other Christians, I'm going to do it. I will risk being contact traced and sent home from work. Now, listen, if you're in that position, nobody can say to you that you have to come to any particular Christian meeting. I just use that as an example of someone marking themselves out as Christians, showing that different things matter to them. And it's not rude, but it's noticeable. It's rooted in their own relationship with God, and it's a bit risky. You could end up letting everybody down. Someone else was telling me recently that they've noticed at this moment that everybody is closing their doors in hospitality. You know, you might have family around in your home, but that's it. Teaching that we have about being hospitable has gone out the door. Because we might catch coronavirus or we might be told to self-isolate. And so this person said to me, and this is just their choice, their line in the sand, they said to me, every Tuesday... I'm going to have people who are not in my household in my home, in accordance with the public health guidelines. At the moment, that means I can only have one household, but until I'm allowed to do more, I will have one other household round. They may have been people who've been very careless and will spread coronavirus to me. Now, no one should be forced to do that, but it's a good example because it's not rude. It's noticeable. It's rooted in wanting people to know God better, and it's a bit risky. It is not a Christian response to a mad world to withdraw. It's not a Christian response to a mad world to say, oh, well, just grit our teeth and ride it out. It's a Christian response in our mad world, yes, to obey God, that goes without saying, but it's a Christian response to enter as deeply into the mad world as you can and then stand out in a way that you can work out is distinctive. Last thing we see in the passage, the rest of the chapter is about brains and blessings. In walking with God, Daniel and his friends receive the blessing of doing very well. When they're brought to the king's court, they're wiser than all of his other advisors. So that blessing they have that is being brought about by God's faithfulness to them and their faithfulness to God, that blessing that then pours out on them sort of tips out of them into 
this godless world. They become channels of God's blessing to this godless empire. Now, over time, they're going to have some more terrifying scrapes as they bring the knowledge of God to Babylon, a place that really hates God. And that's the picture of the life of God's person in a mad world. You end up in some pretty terrifying, scary situations. But if you walk with God and stand out for him in whatever way you think is right, with that magic word, integrity, to your conscience, and you're trusting Jesus, you will bring blessing to that place where you are, no matter how godless it is. I think we know that's true. You may know someone in your workplace or whatever who's played the game perfectly. They've accepted all the language. They've done whatever it takes to get ahead without any integrity. The popular person in your group who does whatever it takes to become popular and stay popular. That person who fits in with whatever they're told to keep in with the powerful people. Do those people bring any blessing? Are they actually any good for that workplace? My guess is no. The person who brings blessing, the person you will trust, the person who helps others, is not the person who wants to get ahead for themselves, but the person who is willing with integrity to stand up for what they think is right. may not always be as straightforward as it was for Daniel here. It's about to get a lot less straightforward for him, just to be clear. But if before God you do what you think, wisely informed by his word, you do what you think is right, and you're not rude, but it's noticeable, and it's rooted in a respect for God, and it's risky, you will bring blessing to the darkest of places. You will bring the good stuff that God pours out to you and bring it to the place where you are. The blessing you receive will overflow and other people, even people who don't know God, will stand under that blessing and receive it. The person, of course, who most teaches us that, even more than Daniel, is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus did more than the law ever required. He stood up for what was right beyond what the law could have required, just out of love and grace and mercy, and he was killed for that. But the Bible says God raised him to the highest place and God poured out blessings on Jesus because of his faithfulness and that blessing pours out from Jesus to us. People who didn't know God at all. This picture of coming into the most godless place and being more faithful than you could have required to be and that bringing blessing to godless people, well, that's Jesus, isn't it? Coming into the darkest place in the world, being raised up by God and honoured by God and because he's honoured by God, all that he receives pours out to us who trust in him. If you're a Christian, you're standing under that fountain. You're being, the blessings of Jesus are pouring out onto you. Jesus who stood up and stood out means I receive a right relationship with God that pours out from him. 
And Daniel is also saying, though, that that blessing can be passed on by me in the darkest places where I am. We can actually do good, even in this maddest of worlds that we're in at the moment. There's plenty of good that needs doing. And that will happen, yes, by obedience, by saying, I will do what God says is right and wrong, as Jesus' blessings of salvation pour out on me. But even more than that, it will happen as you choose carefully, deliberately, to stand out. Think, pray, what is the way you can stand out that is not rude, but is noticeable, that is rooted in your relationship of blessing with Jesus, but that is risky. If God is really in charge of everything, as the book of Daniel assures us he is, then surely standing out for him is the best way to live in a world that's going mad. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just pray for um, every workplace, every university, every hospital, every school, every home that is represented by the people watching this. And how I pray, how we pray that by your spirit you will empower us to stand out in a way that then means blessing pours out to other people. Lord, please convict us of what that should be. Help us not to be satisfied with just saying, well, I'll try and do the right thing and keep my head down. Help us rather to say, I'm going to choose to stand out in a way that draws attention to me and more than that, draws attention to the God who saved me. And as we do that, oh Lord, may we see the blessing of people coming to know Christ happen around us. I pray particularly for those of us in places that feel very, very dark and very, very godless. Give us the wisdom we need, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.